Find chapter 13 as we continue our journey through 1st and 2nd Kings. Squandered opportunities. Have you ever squandered any of your opportunities? Never. 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 Second Kings 13. In the 23rd year of Joash, son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord by following the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. We're going to see that phrase repeated again. What were the sins of Jeroboam? Idolatry. Remember, Rehoboam was Solomon's son. He took the advice of the young elders who said, be even harsher on the people than your dad Solomon was. When Rehoboam made that decision, Jeroboam took ten tribes of Israel, split off from the two southern tribes, and at that point it becomes a divided kingdom. Instead of Israel, it's now Israel and Judah. Israel, the ten tribes to the north, Judah, two tribes to the south. And so that the people in the north, the ten tribes, would not go back to the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem, to worship at the temple, uh, Jeroboam was afraid if they did that, they might. Not me. <laughs> Where was I? <laughs> he was afraid that they'd go back down to the southern kingdom, to the temple, and worship. So two different places in the northern kingdom. Uh, up in Dan, the northern part of the northern kingdom, and Bethel, the southern part of the northern kingdom, he set up golden calves to be worshipped. Okay? Let's continue. Which he had caused Israel to commit, and he did not turn away from them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And for a long time he kept them under the power of Hazael, king of Aram, and Benadad, his son. Then Jehoahaz sought the Lord's favor, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw how severely the king of Aram was oppressing Israel. Again, Aram is Syria. Okay? The Lord provided a deliverer for Israel, and they escaped from the power of Aram. So the Israelites lived in their own homes as they had before, but they did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. They continued in them. Also, the Asherah pole remained standing in Samaria. Asherah was the female counterpart to Baal in Canaanite religion, Baal and Asherah. Nothing had been left of the army of Jehoahaz except 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, 10,000 foot soldiers, for the king of Aram had destroyed the rest and made them like the dust at threshing time. As for the other events of the reign of Jehoahaz, all that he did and his achievements, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jehoahaz rested with his ancestors and was buried in Samaria. 
And Jehoash, his son, succeeded him as king. Now the Hebrew is Joash. So now we're going to have a Joash, king of the northern kingdom, as well as a Joash, king of the southern kingdom, for two years. An overlap in names there. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, or again, Joash, uh, son of Jehoahaz, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he caused Israel to commit. He continued in them. As for the other events of the reign of Jehoash, all that he did in his achievements, including his war against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jehoash rested with his ancestors and Jeroboam succeeded him on the throne. This is Jeroboam II. Uh, Jehoash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows, and he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said. And he shot the Lord's error of victory, the error of victory over error, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. Elisha died and was buried. Now, Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once, while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders, so they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. Hazael, king of Aram, oppressed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them, because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To this day, he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. Hazael, king of Aram, died, and Benadad, his son, succeeded him as king. Then Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, recaptured from Benadad, son of Hazael, the towns he had taken in battle from his father Jehoahaz. Three times Jehoash defeated him, and so he recovered the Israelite towns. Squandered opportunities. You know, at one time, Mike Tyson was the most feared heavyweight boxer in the ring. Now, based on an interview that he gave back in 2005, here is what Tyson concluded. Uh, confused and humiliated after a decadent lifestyle, uh, left him with broken relationships, shattered finances, and his reputation in ruins, Tyson 
said he could not any longer hide his insecurities. I'll never be happy, he says. I believe I'll die alone. I would want it that way. I've been a loner all my life with my secrets and my pain. I'm really lost, but I'm trying to find myself. I'm really a sad, pathetic case. The divorced father of six is blunt, gregarious, funny, vulgar, outrageous, sad, angry, bitter, and at times introspective about the opportunities he squandered over the last two decades. He discusses his drug use. He says, and I quote, the weed got me. Also lack of self-esteem and sexual ad addiction. He says, my whole life has been a waste. I've been a failure, end quote. Folks, much the same could be said for Israel and Judah. We've seen their story as we've been going through First and Second Kings. We've seen their story being a story of squandered opportunities. But sadly, you know, they continued to live as though they were going in the right direction. And because of that, they repeatedly paid the price. Now, as we come to this chapter, the focus shifts again, as it commonly does. It shifts this time from Judah back to Israel. And you need to understand that as you read First and Second Kings. It'll be describing the southern kingdom, and then the next chapter might switch and discuss the northern kingdom. And then the chapter after that, the southern kingdom. Back and forth like that. And so in this chapter, the focus is going to be back on the northern kingdom again. The northern kingdom, Israel. Uh, and we know that Israel will fall first. They will be destroyed by the Assyrians. Not the Syrians, but the Assyrians. And then after they're destroyed, I guess about a hundred years, some hundred plus years later, Judah will be taken into Babylonian exile for 70 years. At this point, though, it's like the reader, or excuse me, the writer is going to pick up the pace a bit. Over the next three chapters, we're going to meet eight kings of Israel covering about 80 years. Now, the final day of reckoning is drawing closer for Israel when Assyria is going to come in and destroy them. Jehu has died, and his son Jehoahaz becomes king of Israel in 814 B.C. Now, you'll recall Jehu, from what we saw two weeks ago, Jehu was like God's sledgehammer. And he removed Baalism from the land, but surprisingly, he had not dealt with the sins of Jeroboam, the idolatry that Jeroboam had brought into the land. Jer uh, again, we, we spoke a moment ago about who Jeroboam was. Uh, I want you to see, first of all, with me tonight, sinful patterns that do not die. Sinful patterns that do not die. 
verses 1 to 3. In the 23rd year of Joash, son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord by following the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. You know, it seems like Jehoahaz, in following the sins of Jeroboam, he would rather worship golden calves than the living God. You know, isn't that puzzling that men will do something like that? We will worship what, I, what our hands have made, or we will worship our accomplishments, or our children's accomplishments, or money, or possessions, or whatever it is, we'll worship things like that instead of worshiping the true and the living God. It's tragic. But men still do it today. And just like God had said to his people when he had first called them out of Egypt and led them into the promised land, as long as they served him, he would protect them from their enemies. But if they ever turned their backs on him, he would bring their enemies against them. And that's exactly what God is doing. At this point, he is using Syria as a rod of judgment against his people. You know, that shows us God's true to his word, isn't it? You know, Satan wants to tell people, oh, you'll, you'll surely not die. Just like he told Eve. He wants us to believe that sin has no consequence whatsoever. Just go ahead and sin. It doesn't matter. But over and over in the Bible, we see that it does matter. There's consequences to sin. Folks, when are we ever going to wake up to the fact that sin costs us more than we wanted to pay, it takes us further than we wanted to go, and it keeps us longer than we wanted to stay? When are we going to realize that? Haziel and then his son Benadad, the kings of Syria, tormented Israel, especially Haziel. He was more powerful than Benadad, his son, but both of them gave Israel a fit. Now, what effect did this have? Secondly, I want you to see foxhole religion on display. Look at verses 4 and 5. Then Jehoahaz sought the Lord's favor, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw how severely the king of Aram was oppressing Israel. The Lord provided a deliverer for Israel, and they escaped from the power of Aram. God's discipline should have produced genuine repentance. But what did they end up with? Foxhole religion. Israel cried out to the Lord. They were in trouble. They cried out to the Lord. The Lord listened to him, for the Lord saw the oppression that they were going through. And verse 5 says that God even sent them a Savior, a Deliverer. Now, what does all this sound like, folks? It sounds to me like the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, we would see God's people repeatedly sin. But then they would cry out to God. God would send them a judge, a deliverer. They would go 
go right back into their sin again. Um, now, scholars speculate about the identity of the deliverer that verse 5 mentions. In all probability, the deliverer uh, would have been the nation of Assyria, led at this point by a man named Adad Nareri III. Uh, Assyria, they reasserted their interest in the region. Syria had been persecuting Israel, but by Assyria, a stronger nation, reasserting their interest in the area, what did that do for Israel? It led Syria to take its attention off of Israel. Because now, with Assyria, Syria had a more powerful opponent to have to deal with. So ironically, Assyria, and specifically the king of Assyria, is probably the deliverer that's being spoken of here, that God raised them up, which took Syria's attention off of Israel. Sovereignty of God in all of this. History is His story. It's God's story. God raises one kingdom up and puts down another. Folks, we don't ever need to forget that. Uh, what happened was again, Assyria occupied the attention for now of the Syrians. Now, verse 5 says that the children of Israel lived in their homes as previously. In other words, they didn't have to hide in the walled cities anymore. They enjoyed peace in the land once again. Because, as I've been saying, Syria, who was oppressing them, now had to give their attention to Assyria. So Israel has a time of rest. Folks, do you realize today that God could give America peace if only we would turn to him? But what did the people here do? They squandered this opportunity. Notice in verse 6, they turned back to the sin of Jeroboam. Plus, on top of that idolatry, they continued to allow the Asherah pole to remain in the land. Uh, so this great opportunity they had when they cried out to the Lord and God sent them a deliverer, uh, they've squandered that opportunity now by, in their rest, turning back once again to idolatry. Sad, isn't it? Well, as we see in verse 7, God never did let Israel, uh, he didn't let them be much again under Jehoahaz. Uh, his army had all but been destroyed by the Syrians. 
The image of dust on the threshing floor is an image of just measly leftovers. Uh, so Israel's army is decimated. And all they had was just a small remnant of what they've had before. And so God never did restore Israel's strength from this point on. Jehoahaz dies off. That's the end of his story for now. The end of the story under Jehoahaz. Now, this is a sad commentary on many people's lives. People sin, they lead others into sin with them. God disciplines them. They suffer, they cry out to God with only foxhole religion. God delivers them, then they just go back to doing what they were doing before. Their lives are weak and ineffective. And people today who follow this pattern, if they are believers, they're certainly not living victorious Christian lives. Then one day they die, they're put in the ground, nobody remembers anything about them anymore, and they didn't leave any kind of lasting legacy for themselves. Isn't that sad? But the saddest part in that is, unfortunately, uh, this is the story of many, many Christians today. Maybe even most Christians today. There's just half-hearted allegiance to God. Uh, their religion only kicks it up a notch when they get in trouble and they need God and give false foxhole religion. When God brings them relief, they just go back to how they were before. And their lives never really end up counting for Christ. It's a pattern we see, unfortunately, today. I pray that God would deliver us from that. You know, would deliver us from just a foxhole type religion. Well, I want you to see beginning in verse 10, the dark cloud remains. We see the next guy in line. His name is Jehoash. And he's the son of Jehoaz from the previous verses. And as I mentioned to you before, uh, sometimes his name is just simply given as Joash. Uh, in the Hebrew, that's a variant of Jehoash. Again, don't confuse him with Joash, the king of Judah, who came to the throne of Judah at age seven. We've been talking about him the past couple of weeks. This is a different Joash. The Joash of Judah, the seven-year-old, he died in 796 B.C., and this Joash came to the throne of Israel in 798 B.C., so there was a two-year period that Israel and Judah had a king by the same name. Are you confused yet? <laughs> Well, in verses 10 to 13, before we really see what uh, Joash did, we're given a brief summary of his life. And in this summary, it's like the writer of 2 Kings is saying, in essence, I'm going to tell you more about Joash in a moment, but he was such a disappointment who, just like those before him, he squandered his opportunities. 
So I'm just going to quickly summarize his life. And that's basically all the writer does at this point. He just summarizes Joash's life and pretty well lets us know that it's more of the same old, same old. Again, what a sad commentary. It's, it's like the writer of 2 Kings is saying, here's another one, here's another one, great potential, but in the end, a wasted reign and a wasted life. Well, let's look at his life in detail a little more to see what made him such a disappointment. And you see more about his life beginning in verse 14, running down through uh, verse 24. He goes to see Elisha. Elisha has not been heard from on the pages of Scripture since back when he had told a servant to go and anoint Jehu as the king. And so for about 40 years now, Elisha has apparently been sort of serving quietly. You know, you don't have to always have your name in lights to be a faithful servant, do you? Sometimes, you know, you might be more in the background and at other times you might be more in the foreground. Life can ebb and flow that way. Ministries can sort of ebb and flow that way. He's just kind of been quiet. He's been faithful but quiet. And you know, sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you get the impression that when we're talking about a biblical character and the events of their lives, one event happens after the other in a rapid succession. When in reality, years or decades might go by. You might be reading about a character in the Bible, get to, to the end of that chapter, go into a new chapter that's talking about him. 25 years might have gone by. Who would be a great example of that in the book of Genesis? Joseph, right? Joseph. We read about his coat of many colors. Then of him being thrown in the pit by his brothers. Then of them drawing back out, uh, selling him to the Midianites. Then his service in Potiphar's house. Then his imprisonment. Then his rise to prime minister. We get, we get the impression in Genesis that these are events just right after the other in Joseph's life. But we fail to see that the years and years and years and years are going by in Joseph's life. It's the same here with Elisha. He, he's been patiently and quietly serving the Lord. We haven't even heard from him, but he's still a faithful prophet in the land. Now he's old and he's ill. With an illness that's going to be fatal, and the new king in Israel goes to see him. Now, we can at least give Jehoahaz credit here. He, he recognizes at least that God has worked in mighty ways to Elisha. He respects Elisha. But again, let me say something sad here. You know, I, I see Je, uh, Jehoash at this point like a lot of people today. I'll give you an analogy of that. There are countless Americans, even prominent leaders around the world, who always enjoy meeting with Billy Graham. 
they'd send Billy Graham cards. You read about it in some of his books and so forth. They'd send him cards. They'd write him letters. They'd wish him well from his illnesses in later years. They'd show all kinds of respect for the man. But some of them would never embrace the gospel message that Billy Graham preached. They respected him, but they just didn't embrace his message. And that's pretty much what I see here going on in Jehoahaz. He respects the man of God. He weeps over him. He even fears the nation losing Elisha's influence. Uh, he's going to listen in a moment to something Elisha is going to tell him to do. And then he's going to turn right around and kind of ignore Elisha. Now let's see how this plays out. In verse 14, Elisha's sick. And again, like I mentioned, he's going to die from this illness. Joash goes uh, to see Elisha. Uh, Jehoahaz, that is. Goes to see him. He cries. He knows Elisha's about to die. And that while his chariots and horsemen are few, the God of Elisha has certainly come through for him in the past. Time and time again. <coughs> even when the odds were against them. Well, in verse 15, Elisha has him open the windows eastward. Aphek is to the east and was the direction they faced attached so oftentimes from Syria. So he puts his hands uh, over the hand of the king and the king is told to fire uh, an arrow. So that's what... Joash does. The message from the prophet is what? That in Aphek, Joash will defeat the Syrians. That's the message. And then beginning in verse 18, Elisha commands Joash to, to take his quiver of arrows and strike the ground. One, one commentator says maybe he was to take the the, the quiver of these airs and strike the ground, but the way the Hebrew can be interpreted, he's also going to uh, shoot off these airs just like he did the first one. Could be either. Uh, but what's he do? He only takes three of them out, and he leaves the others. Elisha's angry because Joash has not obeyed. And the message is clear. You could have had the chance to once and for all defeat the Syrians, but now you're only going to defeat them three times. So once again, what do we see here? Squander opportunities. A lack of faith and a lack of obedience to God is keeping them from what they want most in life for their nation. God's given them grace and mercy, and what do they keep doing over and over again? They keep falling short. They keep failing to move forward in faith. And there's a message in that to us. Think of what God could do in our midst if we only consistently exercised faith and commitment to God. Think 
kind of how God works today. He calls on somebody to do something. Maybe they say no. Think of the missed blessings, not only to that person, but to the people that that person would have impacted. Maybe God invites a, a, a church to get involved in something. Everybody says, no, it'll cost too much. or It'll take too much time. Think of all the blessings that could be, but then the squander opportunities. I always think of a testimony regarding this that Dr. Charles Page, when he was still alive, First Baptist in Charlotte, he talks about when he pastored in South Carolina. Uh, the convention came to them, came to the church, pointed to a country over in Africa where they said that... Uh, we as Southern Baptists desperately need a training center in this particular African country. They said much of what we do in that whole area of Africa will depend upon this training center getting built and, and then advancing. Uh, they said it takes something like two years to build at a cost of about $150,000. Now remember, this was decades. This, what I'm talking about here, this particular situation was probably 40 years ago, 40, 45 years ago. And in Africa, you can build for a lot cheaper. It's going to be about two years to build it, about $150,000. Dr. Page took it to his congregation, he said. And one dear lady, who always shot down everything, stood up and said, Pastor, it'll cost too much of our resources. It'll tie up too many of our people for too long. He said, well, Ethel, let's just step out in faith and do it anyway. The congregation did. Dr. Page said, it didn't take two years and cost $150,000. It took four years and cost $350,000. He said, but nobody in our church would have taken a dime for the blessing it was to our congregation. Think of missed blessings. Joash missed an opportunity here. Verses 20 and 21 record a strange event, but it was no doubt meant to, to be a great encouragement to Joash. The Moabites were constantly invading Israel also, along with the Syrians. They would even raid a, a burial party. That's pretty bad, isn't it? Raid a burial party and steal everybody blind. This is what's about to happen here. But the Israelites see them coming, quickly throw the dead body into Elisha's tomb. The man comes to life. Now, the significance ties in with what follows. There's most likely a play on the word throw in the Hebrew. They threw the man away, but he came to life. In verses 22 and 23, because of God's covenant with Abraham, he was not going to throw his children away and let them die. He had not let Israel uh, be destroyed back in the days of Jehoahaz, Joash's dad. That was talked about in verses 1 to 9. And he wasn't going to let Israel be destroyed now. 
it might appear to Joash that God was going to let them die. But again, God's true to His covenant promises even when we're not faithful. Amen? Joash could know that Elisha, though dead, spoke the word of God. God would bring the prophet's words to pass. Just when Israel seemed dead and like God had thrown them away, God would bring them back to life. And he's using this guy thrown in the grave and back to life as an analogy of that, an illustration of that. You know, I tell you, people need to take heart this even today. God's not done with Israel. Romans 9 through 11 addresses that. He's not thrown his people away. Uh, at, at the end of time, just when they seem ready for the tomb, God's going to save a complete number of Israel. Paul says that his own life is an example of this, even in the first century. He says all Israel is not lost. God is grafting them back into the olive tree. Uh, Ezekiel 37 talks about the valley of dry bones that comes to life where you, where you take a man of God preaching the word of God to the people of God and what does God do? God brings life out of that. <clears throat> so commentators will say this grave episode here would have been a living parable to them that though they were as good as dead, God will spare them and give them renewed life. Then verse 24 gives us another summary of Israel's dealings with Syria, along with the fulfillment of the prophecy Elisha gave back in verse 19. Hazel, king of Syria, dies. Benadad, his son, takes over Syria. Joash continues the battles against Syria that his dad had to deal with. Joash wins back these cities that his dad had lost to Syria. Three times, Joash wins these cities back. It's, it's a reminder of squandered opportunities. Sure, he won back cities three times, but what could have happened had he fired all of the arrows that Elisha wanted him to fire off. He could have won all the cities back. And so while ending on a note of victory, the writer kind of tempers the excitement, says, yes, there's victory, but again, look at what could have been. It could have been even better had he just obeyed. No, well, kind of reminds me of Proverbs 14, 12, where it says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. We, we could certainly say that about the downward spiral we've been witnessing in First and Second Kings. Now, let me give you some takeaways tonight. Man's depravity goes deep. Man's depravity goes deep. Sin is not simply surface mistakes, but rather 
deep-seated rebellion to God. Secondly, God disciplines His children to prompt them to return to Him. Thirdly, God is merciful and gracious when we return to Him and call upon His name. Fourthly, wanting God to get us out of the fire without experiencing true heart change is not biblical repentance. Fifth, Disobedience dishonors God, but also costs us greater blessings from God. And then lastly, if God were not faithful to His Word, as well as long-suffering, there would be no hope for any of us. And again, I just want to close tonight by, you know, inviting you to take a look at your own life. What God's called you to do. Have you done it? Maybe you've done it partially. You look back and you think of squandered opportunities. You obey God, but He could have used you so much more had you obeyed Him all the way. You know? Think of the squandered opportunities in your own life. And what can God do with a people that are totally and completely surrendered to Him? Just think of what He can do. Think of how He could use you and your family. Think of how He could use churches across America today if we were sold out to Him and obeyed Him not just most of the time or halfway, but obeyed Him fully. Squandered opportunities when we don't follow through with what He's called us to do. It ought to make us not want to live that way, right? But be sold out. Any questions or comments of the text tonight? What does the text do? What does the term foxhole religion You've never heard that. Okay. Uh, foxhole religion is a phrase that's used of people like soldiers in a foxhole who cry out to God for help when the bullets are flying at them. You know, God saves them, keeps them safe. They get out of the foxhole and just go back to the way they were. Jailhouse religion. Jailhouse religion. Yep. Yep. That'd be another term for it. My brother Good said, to see you tonight, by the way. Thank you. My brother said that when when he was uh, fighting more of the 
Second World War, and he was on the front line. And he said, Violet, uh, I want to let you know there is no unbelievable <laughs> in the fossils. Everybody that's in one of the fossils cry out to God. Yeah, yeah, they do. We don't do. We don't learn from history. No, we sure don't. That's why the Testaments uh, uh, say that there's no non-believers, so to speak, in, in, uh, in Fox Hunt. Because yeah. what does that tell you about man's um, knowledge about there is a God? Oh, yeah. It's appointed of all men. Once to die and after just the judgment. And men in their hearts know that, don't they? Yeah. We can we can do with the uh, bones of Elijah's uh, dead dead man because uh, the Bible says before you save your dead and your trespasses and sins. Yep. And uh, Elijah is a he's a man like, like just like we are. So it's God's word. So we have that treasure, and we we represent a living word, the well that you could drink from. And the people that are unsaved are like uh, walking dead, and they could be uh, they could be made alive. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Good point. 